Today on Stronger Than Reason, we'll talk about one of the most critically acclaimed bands of the 1980s, Talking Heads. Welcome to Stronger Than Reason. So, much like I did with the U2 episode, I have to start off with some caveats. For one, this band is definitely not electronic or industrial, but were only alternative for a time in the late 70s before they broke through in a big way. For another, I'm not a tremendous fan of them, but I acknowledge their influence and overall contribution to the 80s and 90s music scene. And now I have a good appreciation for them, even if I'm not a mega fan. I wasn't listening to this band at all back in the day uh, by choice, but I did have at least one friend who was into them. I mentioned him on here from time to time. I became aware of them mostly through FM radio and the general media. So songs like Once in a Lifetime, Burning Down the House, and Take Me to the River have been immediately recognizable to me since I was a little kid. They were a band that was widely touted as a new kind of band back in the day, one that wasn't just singing the same old love songs. So they were making songs, as they said, about buildings and food, you know, about normal people just trying to get through the day in the modern world. And they spoke to people who were a bit baffled by the progress of technology by expectations put on them as young adults in the go-go 90s. You know, this was an era when Dallas Dynasty and Reaganomics encouraged unadulterated greed, an era when being vaporized by a nuclear first strike was more than just a theoretical possibility. So this was a band that instead of exemplifying the sort of stereotypical swaggering rock confidence instead exemplified a kind of anxiety and paranoia. And more to a point, their quirky lead vocalist and guitarist David Byrne became the personification of all of these things. He was kind of a straw man of all the 80s neuroses. And the media focus on him would eventually lead to the end of the band. And of course, the band I'm talking about is none other than Talking Heads. So much like with you 2 Talking Heads were just in the air when I was growing up. They were already part of the culture. They were just another band I'd hear on the car radio and in the grocery store. And I remember being a kid at my grandparents' house and seeing David Byrne on the cover of Time magazine. And I actually looked that up. And if you're interested, it was the issue from October 26th, 1986. You can check it out yourself. The cover said, Rock's Renaissance Man. So he was a pretty big deal at the time. And I have to admit that all the media attention on Talking Heads and David Byrne in particular didn't do much to endear them to me. I mean, as a kid, I knew that adults read Time magazine and this guy was on the cover. So I figured that his music was for adults. It wasn't for me. So I was less inclined to care about it. So growing up, I thought their music was you know, okay. It was tolerable at best. Uh, There was not much about it that drew me in. And it would be some decades before I found much to like about Talking Heads. But I would eventually get there. And when did that finally happen? I guess it really boiled down to two things. 
the first thing that happened was that I bought an album and it wasn't a Talking Heads album. Not really, but it was related and it was in fact this album, which is called No Talking Just Head, which is credited to the heads, which in fact were the Talking Heads minus David Byrne. In other words, it was Jerry Harrison, Tina Weymouth, and Chris France backing a number of guest vocalists, and they released this in 1996, five years after Talking Heads broke up. And I remember buying this CD in a used record store, and I remember the discussion I had with the clerk because he totally sold me on it. He did a really good job. He said it was a great record, that it had Debbie Harry of Blondie on a few tracks, which you can see here. Uh, it certainly does. What really sold me though, I have to admit, was that it had Sean Ryder of the Happy Mondays on a track. And what I didn't tell you is that I didn't pick this up right when it came out. I picked it up around uh, 1999 or so, which was long after I was a certified nut about all things related to New Order and Factory Records, as you may have gathered from the previous episode. And by then, I had a copy of the Monday's then-final album, Yes, Please, which was famously produced by Chris and Tina in 1992, and which was the subject of a million hilarious stories of how they tried to corral this band of drug-addled ne'er-do-wells into making a record. And you can read all about that in the memoirs that Peter Hook and Stephen Morris and Barney Sumner have written, and you can see some dramatization of those events in the movie 24-hour party people. And I mean, really, I don't know how much more I can plug these things, folks. <laughs> if you have any interest in the sheer nuttiness that was Factory Records, please read and watch these things already. Uh, if nothing else, use them as cautionary tales in your own life for your own creative endeavors as a way to know what not to do. But seriously, a lot of funny things happened when Tina and Chris were helping the Happy Mondays make this album. Uh, for some reason, they thought it would be a good idea to have the Mondays record down in Barbados. I guess they had recorded there as Talking Heads in a studio owned by Eddie Grant of Electric Avenue fame. And complete chaos ensued. As you can imagine, the Mondays did a ton of drugs. Bez broke his arm three times, the same arm. And Sean sold Eddie Grant's studio furniture for crack money. <laughs> but hey, Chris and Tina remained friends enough with Sean to invite him to sing on the Heads album a few years later. So uh, I guess they, they weren't that upset by the whole thing. And I have to admit that Sean's track is one of my favorites. It's called Don't Take My Kindness for Weakness. Uh, great tune. In fact, I think this whole album is very strong. I think it's uh, maybe more stylistically diverse than a typical Talking Heads album. And, you know, for what it's worth, it doesn't suffer from David's rather large ego. My favorite track on this album is definitely Paper Snow with XTC's Andy Partridge on vocals. It's just a masterpiece, lyrically, musically, and in every way. And it's funny uh, because you'd have thought that my love for this track would have fueled an interest in XTC, especially after seeing them do the song Dear God on 120 Minutes a Zillion Times, which, let's admit, is a pretty cold-blooded and clever song. But alas, no, I am a knucklehead, and I never really got into XTC. Uh, I guess I'm just saving that for my 60s, 
a little something to look forward to. But yeah, this is a pretty interesting album. There's one track with Michael Hutchins, R.I.P. There's uh, one with Gavin Friday, Gordon Gano, a few others. All really cool. The music is pretty varied and interesting. Anyway, check it out if you ever wondered what Talking Heads would be like without David Byrne. Uh, The second thing that happened was around this time, my boss let me borrow this two-disc set, which was called Popular Favorites, Sand and the Vaseline. And soon enough, as you see, I bought my own copy. And this was really my first proper introduction to the band. It's a compilation that came out in 1992. It's also kind of a best of. There's a handful of new unreleased tracks on it. One of those news songs really jumped out at me, and it's called Popsicle. And it's just really, really a great tune, just a barn burner. It's really funky. The lyrics are great. Uh, Jerry Harrison makes a remark in the liner notes that it was one of his favorites from the Speaking in Tongues sessions. So I guess they rescued it and tarted it up here and just did a great job. Check it out if you haven't heard it. But I was familiar with another song here called Heaven, only because I had heard the cover by a band called Widespread Panic. Now hold up, because I have to unpack this a bit. Um, I first copied some of my friend's Widespread Panic tapes on the assumption, based on the name, that they were some kind of underground industrial act. You know, Widespread Panic! Imagine my surprise to find that they were a hippie jam band. But you know, I don't even mind hippie jam bands, if they can play. And widespread panic could definitely play they had the chops and on disc anyway their self-indulgent noodling was reined in a lot so the first couple albums of theirs were pretty great i listened to them a lot over the years the first one was called space wrangler and it ends with a mashup of me and the devil blues with heaven so a little heaven a little hell and their cover of heaven was really straight and i was surprised on listening to this to see in the liner notes that it was a song by Talking Heads, and the lyrics were kind of funny, and I dug it. And yeah, I think I mentioned before that Widespread Panic were one of those bands I used to listen to all the time on cassette, but I never repurchased them in any digital form, so I'll probably go back and pick up at least those first two albums one of these days, because I can still remember a lot of those songs, and there's some good stuff in there. Anyway, Sand and the Vaseline has a lot of other classic tracks. So you got your radio favorites like Once in a Lifetime, Take Me to the River, Burning Down the House. Uh, There was a time in the 80s when you couldn't leave your door without hearing one of those three tunes when you were out and about. Uh, Then you had your slightly less overplayed tunes like And She Was and Wild Wild Life, both of which I really, really like. And of course, your tracks made famous by their performance and stop making sense which we'll talk about shortly so girlfriend is better life during wartime swamp this must be the place and a bunch of other stuff that true fans even now are upset that i'm not mentioning all of which is pretty good and showcases different aspects of the band which leads me to talking heads sound and look so sound wise they play melodic rock with plenty of keyboard along with the guitar. So Jerry Harrison more or less focused on keyboards. That's why he was brought into the band. But really all the band members could and did play them. And Jerry played keyboards and plays keyboards in the musical sense, not in the 
wear a synth band and we're only going to play the white keys kind of sense. Or like only ever using middle C to trigger a bunch of synth events or samples or whatever. So he clearly had classical training. And it's clear listening to Talking Heads that they understood music theory. Their songs had some melodic sophistication. They weren't a band that were coming out of punk with three chords and an attitude. So they were on a higher level than that, composition-wise. There was definitely more going on. And they were sometimes described as art rock, but maybe that was only because David, Tina, and Chris met at the Rhode Island School of Design. I mean, what is art rock, really? It's just meaningless, like a lot of labels. But one thing that definitely struck me and colored my perception of them was that their music wasn't very hard. And I've always been drawn to music that had an edge or was aggressive in some way. Talking heads were a lot of things, but they weren't aggressive. And they you know, didn't fit into club culture. They didn't often groove or swing very much. Or if they did, they did it in an extremely dorky way. So Take Me to the River was maybe their grooviest or funkiest song. And it only rates a 3 out of 10 on the James Brown scale. So let's be honest. Uh, with a 10, of course, being Sex Machine featuring Bobby Bird on backup vocals and Bootsy and Catfish Collins on bass and guitar, respectively. That's some pure, uncut funk. But Take Me to the River, you know, that was a cover as well. It was a cover of an Al Green song, not an original. But still, I'd rate it about a 3 out of 10 on that scale. So in general, they didn't swing very much. With a few exceptions, you know, Chris France typically would only play very straight vanilla rock beats. The rhythms were largely the same, that is, until they started dabbling in world music. And I guess that was David trying to distinguish himself. I'm sure he'd say he was incorporating African rhythms out of artistic curiosity and growth, but... The fact is, it was kind of a trend at the time among rich white male pop stars to expand their sounds into other cultures, typically non-white cultures. Just ask Paul Simon, Peter Gabriel, and Sting. You know, nowadays, these guys would get called out in a hot minute for cultural appropriation. Back in the early 90s, though, it was seen as sophisticated, adopting sounds from world music or jazz would would elevate you above the hoi polloi who didn't know what a djembe was or never heard polyrhythms. And the best way to get there was to pad your band with a bunch of extra musicians from whatever genre you wanted to borrow from. Seriously, though, I do have mixed feelings about this kind of thing, because on one hand, it was another case of rich white guys milking someone else's culture. But on the other, it's hard to argue that it wasn't a win-win for everyone to some extent. So let's take Sting as an example. He released Dream of the Blue Turtles, backed by a killer jazz band, and reaped the benefits of being seen as a rock visionary. But everyone in his band suddenly had national exposure in a way they just didn't have before, and rock audiences suddenly knew who they were. So did that land Branford Marsalis his eventual gig on The Tonight Show? I, I don't know, but it probably didn't hurt his chances. And did it land Daryl Jones, his eventual gig playing bass for the Rolling Stones? Again, I don't know. I can't say it did, but it sure didn't hurt his chances. So you might ask, were Talking Heads a better, more interesting band when they brought in the extra musicians? 
Yes, of course they were a better band. That's like asking if the Springfield Isotopes were better after Mr. Burns loaded the team with major league players. I mean, duh. So sure, you can make a case for a cultural appropriation, but I think it's also true that these sorts of moves could and did kind of benefit everyone. And as listeners, maybe we got exposed to some new styles or sounds or people that we might not have gotten into otherwise. And I think I mentioned before that I'm the kind of person who needs a link to something in order to really get into it. And this sort of thing, this sort of collaboration provides that kind of bridge to people who need it, you know, bridges between styles. Anyway, let's get back to Talking Heads. Uh, The other thing about them that was unusual was their look, okay? They dressed and acted less like rock stars than they did sort of upper middle class students. And the word used at the time was preppy, which was a whole fad in the early 80s. Uh, Those of us who were there all remember this. The idea was to dress like kids in a preparatory school. And that involved polo shirts, especially the Izod shirts with a little alligator in the front. And I'm pretty sure Chris France is wearing one of these in Stop Making Sense. But in general, it was all polos and button downs and popped collars and slacks. So pretty much the opposite of what Van Halen were wearing on stage. And yeah, you can maybe sense me zeroing in on that next big topic, the one we can't avoid, which is their hit 1984 film, Stop Making Sense. And it was filmed at the height of their power, perhaps, by none other than our friend, Jonathan Demi. And you may know him as the director of that touching love story, The Silence of the Lambs, as well as the guy who directed the video for New Order's The Perfect Kiss, which I talked about way back in episode three. So Stop Making Sense was always marketed as a proper motion picture, not just a concert video. And I'm pretty sure it had a theatrical run back in the day. It wasn't just released direct-to-video as concert performances typically are these days. So yeah, When a film has a proper, well-known director and plays in actual theaters, I guess you're allowed to call it a motion picture. Now, I was always somewhat aware of Stop Making Sense, of course, not having lived under a complete rock, but I didn't really give it much attention until I went through a talking heads phase about 10, 15 years ago, and it occurred to me that I hadn't actually sat through the whole thing, so I picked up this DVD And uh, I gave it a deep watch. I gave it a deep watch. Now, this might be a spoiler for anyone who hasn't seen this 40-year-old video, but here it comes. The conceit of the show is this. They start out with a completely bare and empty stage. I'm talking totally bare, like there's a ladder in the back leaning against a brick wall. And the house lights are up, and David Byrne walks out with a boombox and a guitar and plays the first song, which is Psycho Killer, which of course was their big breakthrough hit, and established them as highbrow because it has some lyrics in French. Then on each subsequent song, they add another musician and build out the set some more. So Tina comes out and joins David on bass to play Heaven. Then Chris comes out to lay down the drums on Thank You for Sending Me an Angel. And Jerry comes out to play guitar on Found a Job. And then so on through the extended band. We had Steve Scales on percussion, Lynn Mabry and Edna Holden backing vocals, Alex Weir on guitar, 
And of course, my personal hero, Bernie Worrell of Parliament Funkadelic fame on keys. And the whole thing is shot from the audience's perspective. They don't really show the crowd until the end. So the effect of watching this is like you're there sitting in the audience. And there were all kinds of production rules, like the equipment must all be blacked out wherever possible, especially things like brand names on keyboards and stuff. All the lighting should be white with very few exceptions and so on. Only certain kinds of shots. So the show ended up having a very particular look. It was very stripped down visually so you can focus on the performers. And the band gets through a dozen or so songs and David takes a powder. And that gives Chris and Tina a chance to perform as their side project, the Tom Tom Club, playing their big smash, Genius of Love, which of course was a super big commercial hit and also pretty influential since it was widely sampled in the hip hop world. Then David reemerges for the next tune, Girlfriend is Better, wearing his now iconic big suit as depicted here on the cover. Now, a lot was made of this in the press, but it was really just a piece of showcraft he borrowed from Japanese theater costumes. And he goes into great detail about the psychology of the big suit in the commentary tracks. And there's really no point rehashing that here. But as an aside, I do want to point out that that's another reason I love physical media, because this DVD has commentary tracks from all four band members. That's just stuff you don't get from YouTube or from streaming it in most cases, those commentaries. And often that's where the good stuff is. Like I have the Simpsons DVDs for the first dozen or so seasons and the commentary tracks on those are gold. I don't even watch those episodes anymore. I mean, why bother? I have them all memorized and there's really no point. But the commentaries with their stories and the behind the scenes stuff and with Conan O'Brien, I mean, that's the stuff that makes it worthwhile to own the DVDs and you just can't get it anywhere else. So yeah, an iconic film and an iconic performance from an iconic band, what's not to like? Uh, for me, this video is pretty good, but I don't really have the patience to watch it end to end anymore. It's pretty long for one thing. And to be honest, some of the tunes just don't do it for me. And that's fine. You know, as I said, I'm a more casual fan. I'm not all hardcore and stuff, but I do find this to be an enjoyable watch. Uh, just a couple other things stand out to me about this uh, video. For one, a lot's been made of David's footwear, maybe because the camera is zoomed into his shoes as he walks on stage. He's got white sneakers on, you know. When I first watched this, like I said, it was about 15 years ago. And then maybe it sat on my shelf for a few years. And in that time, it's funny, I experienced the Mandela effect regarding those shoes because I could swear that David's shoes were pink. And imagine my surprise when I watched it again and realized, no, they were white. And I was really confused for a little while. Like, what, what the hell? Did somebody change this? Like, they were pink. Everybody knows they're pink. But then watching the video some more, I realized that it's Jerry's shoes that are pink. So I somehow, I somehow mixed up their footwear, which is pretty embarrassing. Uh, for another, I think it's funny that I can rarely hear Jerry's parts on this video. I mean, it's always obvious to me what David, Tina, and Chris are playing. 
but it's much harder for me to pick out Jerry. Like there, there are places where you correlate what you're seeing on the video, what he's doing with the thing you're hearing. But in general, it's kind of hard to pick him out. And you might say, well, that's a testament to what a pro he is. He's laying down the foundation. He's blending in. He's not doing a lot of hot dogging. I don't know. Maybe that's true. <laughs> it's just something I noticed. Uh, another thing I like about this is how Tina plays some keyboard bass on a few songs, like on Burning Down the House. I think that's just interesting because you don't see many bassists who want to put their bass down to poke at a keyboard. But, you know, rest assured, if Tina Weymouth does it, it's cool. So all you bassists just chill out. And let's see. So Lynn and Edna bring a lot of energy to this performance. Their vocals are killer. And they also have a lot of cool dance moves. And there's a lot of dancing in general among the band in this video, which is kind of strange. It it seems at once choreographed, but it also kind of seems completely spontaneous. And it's very clear that they're having a lot of fun on stage doing that. And it's kind of infectious as you're watching it. And I guess the last thing I'll say about Stop Making Sense is that David Byrne is excellent fronting the band. And of course, the camera spends a lot of time on him. It's lingering on his face. He's the big star, the focus. And he's genuinely great in that role, whether he's running around or pulling faces or doing strange dances. And I got to say, his vocals and his guitar are 100% spot on. In fact, he rarely even looks at his guitar neck. It's all muscle memory. So yeah, total pro. Very impressive. But that leads to the next topic here, the dynamics that eventually tore the group apart. And a lot's been said and written about it in the last 35 years, but it really boils down to the same old story. You know, lead singer, rightly or not, interprets the band's success as his own. Egos get overblown. The singer takes a bigger cut of the credit. And the band enterprise, which may have started out democratically, with an even Steven kind of split, now gets lopsided with the singer taking the lion's share, building resentment. And you can argue all you want that it was justified that David had the bulk of the talent here. He was carrying everyone else. You know, that may or may not be true, but I think it's pretty hard to argue that his push to take things over wasn't kind of a dick move. And really, Brian Eno exacerbated this as their producer. And yes, it's that Brian Eno the popularizer of ambient music, former member of Roxy Music, etc., etc. Looking at their history in its entirety now, he sort of comes across as a dividing factor. The way he and David kind of bolstered each other, they formed a faction starting with their first few albums, and then, of course, in 1981, they made their own solo album called My Life in the Bush of Ghosts, which... I have two fun facts for that I really have to share. First of all, its cover was designed by Peter Saville, who designed sleeves for New Order. And Peter created it using video feedback, which Douglas Hofstadter would approve of. And second, believe it or not, it was a major inspiration for the revolting Cox first album, Big Sexy Land. And I got that little bit directly from the mouth of founding member Richard 23 on Twitter, a few years ago, he said, uh, you know, they were motivated to use Al Jorgensen's Fairlight CMI to put together songs with samples in a similar way that Byrne and Eno did. So if you want a glimpse into the mind of the early Cox, give My Life in the Bush of Ghosts a listen, I guess. But 
back to Eno, it kind of rubs me the wrong way that he pushed himself into the group. In fact, legend has it that he wanted to actually become a part of the band, the fifth member. He wanted them to include his picture on the cover of Remain in Light, which of course ended up being designed by Chris and Tina to some acclaim. It's probably the first computer-generated album cover ever, and for sure it was the inspiration for Gary Talpas's design for the Nine Inch Nails logo. And I think I mentioned it before that I once had a copy of Remain in Light, but I either sold it or lost it. You know, I don't have it anymore, alas. But Chris and Tina opted to leave Eno off the cover, but that was the album where David and Eno took most of the songwriting credits, which kind of planted a seed for discontent they would grow throughout the 80s. I guess the point is that Eno was supposed to be producing, not composing. And you know what? When I listen to Talking Head songs, I don't really notice how well produced they are. Maybe some would say that's a testament to Eno's skill. It's so transparent. But really, I think the appeal of Talking Heads was never in the production. It was primarily in David's lyrics, his delivery, his personality, and also the musicianship of the entire band. And there's nothing special or innovative that I hear about the production. These recordings sound like people playing standard rock instruments in standard ways. You know, audiophiles aren't lining up to use these records as benchmarks to test their equipment. In fact, the production on most of these albums is pretty dry. There are very few effects, especially when you consider that this was the 1980s when some bands were making entire careers out of layering effects. So yeah, the songwriting and performance, totally remarkable. The production, not hugely impressive. Changed my mind. I don't know. Of course, as Rock's renaissance man, David would dabble in other media. He'd create the film True Stories to general acclaim. He would provide the soundtrack to Twyla Tharp's The Catherine Wheel and so on and so forth. And, you know, by the 90s, it was hard to say which David I'd gotten more tired of, Burn or Lynch. And I think teenage me used to get these two mixed up. Sometimes I figured it was just the same guy named David with funny hair, some quirky rebel who is reinventing both film and music. But this really gets down to my beef with talking heads in general, and David Byrne in particular. Some of it just kind of comes off as awfully pretentious. The off-kilter song lyrics, the quirkiness, the nervous energy, the cultural appropriation, if you think in those terms. And I guess the general presumption that the audience thinks you're a genius and will just stay aboard for whatever ride you choose to take them on, just because you're the one driving. I think that perception, and I don't even know if it's a real thing, it's just my perception, you know, that kind of turns me off. And I have to say that I did not follow David's solo career at all. As far as I know, he didn't really go on to further massive success. Not that he had to, he had nothing to prove, but I think realistically, whatever he did after Talking Heads just didn't really compare to the stuff he did with them. And to me, he's still that guy from Talking Heads. So this uh, Where Are They Now segment should be interesting. So David had categorically denied reunion rumors throughout the years, saying he and his former bandmates were just miles apart musically. And inevitably, they reunited briefly to play a few numbers for their Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction. I think that was in 2002. And uh, that was cool, but 
oddly, I just happened to see the band on YouTube last week. It just came right up in my feed, you know, go figure. And it was recorded just a couple days prior. There were David, Jerry, Chris, and Tina sitting on a couch together in front of Stephen Colbert, smiling, laughing, telling stories of the old days. I almost couldn't believe my eyes. I was like, this has to be some kind of deep fake, some sort of AI generated hallucination. But it turns out they once again banded together to pimp the 40th anniversary IMAX re-release of Stop Making Sense. So I got to admit, it was nice seeing them get along. And of course, you know, looking out at uh, the interwebs, I could see that it was fueling speculation about a fuller reunion effort. But in my mind, I think that's just the wrong way to look at it. What would be the point in reuniting after 30 years? The fact is, the comeback is always going to be crap. The KLF proved that. The energy's gone. The time and place are gone. You can't rekindle that old fire. And let's face it, there's no album they could produce now that would compare to anything they did in their heyday. At most, it would be damned with faint praise. So there's hardly any point in trying. I mean, it would quietly sink into obscurity. See Pink Floyd's The Endless River or any album Depeche Mode have made in the last 10 years. So at some point, the returns diminish until they're just not worth the effort anymore. And why would they want to go out on anything but a high note? I don't think they need the cash that badly. So I'm thinking maybe it's better instead to just focus on burying the hatchet. If they could do that, that would be a tremendous accomplishment. Let go of the old gripes. Just maybe appreciate that you're able to sit together on a couch for a half an hour without strangling each other. Maybe just getting along as human beings, letting bygones be bygones. That's a happy ending in my book. I don't need another album. So there you have it, gang. One of the more influential bands of the 80s, Talking Heads. I was never a big fan, but I have to admit that I became more of a fan every time they come back around in my personal orbit. And I seem to revisit them every two years or so. And each time I dig further and further in, I got to say they have some great stuff, even if not all of it is to my liking. And again, check out Popsicle. That's a super cool song. You're listening to Stronger Than Reason either on YouTube or as an Apple or Spotify podcast. Today's secret word is rutabaga. Mention it in the comments and win. As ever, thank you for listening and until next time, stay strong.